Chapter Sixteen of The Bent Twig by Dorothy Canfield. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Sixteen: Playing with Matches. There was much that was acrid about the sweetness of triumph which the next months brought Sylvia. The sudden change in her life had not come until there was an accumulation of bitterness in her heart, the venting of which was the strongest emotion of that period of strong emotions. As she drove about the campus, perched on the high seat of the red-wheeled dog-cart, her lovely face looked down with none of Eleanor Hubert's gentleness into the envying eyes of the other girls. A high color burned in her cheeks, and her bright eyes were not soft. She looked continually excited. At home she was hard to live with, quick to take offense at the least breath of the adverse criticism which she felt unspoken and forbearing, but thick in the air about her. She neglected her music. She neglected her studies. She spent long hours of feverish toil over Aunt Victoria's chiffons and silks. There was need for many toilets now, for the incessantly recurring social events to which she went with young Fisk, chaperoned by Mrs. Draper, who had for her her old rival and enemy, Mrs. Hubert, the most mocking of friendly smiles, as she entered a ballroom, the acknowledged sponsor of the brilliant young sensation of the college season. At these dances, Sylvia had the grim satisfaction, not infrequently the experience of intelligent young ladies, of being surrounded by crowds of admiring young men, for whom she had no admiration, the barren sterility of whose conversation filled her with astonishment, even in her fever of exultation. She knew the delights of frequently splitting her dances, so that there might be enough to go around. She was plunged headlong into the torrent of excitement, which is the life of a social favorite at a large state university. That breathless whirl of one engagement after another for every evening and for most of the days, which is one of the oddest developments of the academic life as planned and provided for by the pioneer fathers of those great western commonwealths. And she savored every moment of it, for during every moment she drank deep at the bitter fountain of personal vindication. She went to all the affairs which had ignored her the year before, to all the dances given by the swell men's fraternities, to the sophomore hop, to the football dance at the end of the season, to the big reception given to the freshman class by the seniors. And, in addition to these evening affairs, she appeared beside Jerry Fisk at every football game, at the first glee club concert, at the outdoor play given by the literary societies, and very frequently at the weekly receptions to the students tendered by the ladies of the faculty. These affairs were always spoken of by the faculty as an attempt to create a homogeneous social atmosphere on the campus. But this attempt had ended, as such efforts usually do, in adding to the bewildering plethora of social life of the students who already had too much, and in being an added sting to the solitude and ostracism of those who had none. Naturally enough, the ladies of the faculty who took most interest in these afternoon functions were the ones who cared most for society life, and there was only too obvious a contrast between their manner of kindly, vague, condescending interest shown to one of the rough-neck students, and the easy familiarity shown to one of those socially possible. The roughnecks seldom sought out more than once the prettily decorated tables 
spent every friday afternoon in the faculty room off the reading room of the library sylvia especially had on the only occasion when she had ventured into this charming scene suffered too intensely from the difference of treatment accorded her and that given eleanor hubert to feel anything but angry resentment after that experience she had passed along the halls with the other outsiders books in hand her head held proudly high and never turned even to glance in at the gleaming tables the lighted candles and the little groups of easily self-confident fraternity men and girls laughing and talking over their teacups and revenging vicariously the rest of the ignored student body by the calm young insolence with which they in their turn ignored their presumptive hostesses the faculty ladies mrs draper changed all this for sylvia with a wave of her hand she took the greatest pains to introduce her protege into this phase of the social life of the university on these occasions as beautiful and as overdressed as any girl in the room with germain fiske in obvious attendance with the exclusive mrs draper setting in a rich frame of commentary any remark she happened to make sylvia was acquiring a reputation for great wit and with eleanor hubert eclipsed sitting in a corner quite deserted save for a funny countrified freak assistant in chemistry with all the swellest frat men in college rushing to get her tea and sandwiches with mrs hubert plunged obviously into acute unhappiness sylvia knew as ugly moments of mean satisfaction as often fall to the lot even of very pretty young women at home she knew no moments of satisfaction of any variety although there was no disapprobation expressed by any one except in one or two characteristically recondite comments by professor kennedy who was taking a rather uneasy triumph in the proof of an old theory of his as to sylvia's character one afternoon at a football game he came up to her on the grandstand shook hands with germain fiske whom he had flunked innumerable times in algebra and remarked in his most acid voice that he wished to congratulate the young man on being the perfect specimen of the dolichocephalic blonde whose arrival in sylvia's life he had predicted years before sylvia belligerently aware of the attitude of her home-world and ready to resent criticism took the liveliest offence at this obscure comment which she perfectly understood she flushed indignantly and glared in silence with the eyes of an angry young goddess young fiske who found the remark or any other made by a college prof quite as unintelligible as it was unimportant laughed with careless impudence in the old man's face and mrs draper for all her keenness could make nothing of it it sounded however so quite like a dictum which she herself would have liked to make that she cross-questioned sylvia afterwards as to its meaning but sylvia lied fluently asserting that it was just some of professor kennedy's mathematical gibberish which had no meaning in the growing acquaintance of sylvia and germain mrs draper acted assiduously as chaperon a refinement of sophisticated society which was as a rule but vaguely observed in the chaotic flux of state university social life and she so managed affairs that they were seldom together alone for obvious reasons sylvia preferred to see the young man elsewhere than in her own home where indeed he made almost no appearance beyond standing at the door of an evening 
very handsome and distinguished in his evening dress, waiting for Sylvia to put on her wraps and go out with him to the carriage, where Mrs. Draper sat expectant, furred, and velvet wrap. This discreet manager made no objection to Sylvia's driving about the campus in the daytime alone with Germain, but to his proposal to drive the girl out to the country club for dinner one evening, she added blandly the imperious proviso that she be of the party, and she discouraged with firmness any projects for solitary walks together through the woods near the campus, although this was a recognized form of coeducational amusement at that institution of learning. For all her air of free and easy equality with the young man, she had at times a certain blighting glance which, turned on him suddenly, always brought him to an agreement with her opinion, an agreement which might obviously ring but verbal on his tongue, but which was nevertheless the acknowledged basis of action. As for Sylvia, she acquiesced with an eagerness which she did not try to understand in any arrangement which precluded tete-a-tetes with Jerry. She did not, as a matter of fact, try to understand anything of what was happening to her. She was by no means sure that she liked it, but was stiffened into a stubborn resistance to any doubts by the unvoiced objection to it all at home. With an instinct against disproportion, perverse perhaps in this case, but with a germ of soundness in it, she felt confusedly and resentfully that since her home circle was so patently narrow and exaggerated in a standard of personality, she would just have to even things up by being a little less fastidious than was her instinct. And on the one or two occasions when a sudden sight of Jerry sent through her a strange, unpleasant stir of all her flesh, she crushed the feeling out of sight under her determination to assert her own judgment and standards against those which had, she now felt, so tyrannically influenced her childhood. But for the most part, she did little thinking, shaking as loudly as possible the reverberating rattle of physical excitement. Thus, everything progressed smoothly under Mrs. Draper's management. The young couple met each other usually in the rather close air of her candle-lighted living room, drinking a great deal of tea, consuming large numbers of delicate, strangely compounded sandwiches, and listening to an endless flow of somewhat startlingly frank personalities from the magnetic mistress of the house. Sylvia and Germain did not talk much on these occasions. They listened with edification to the racy remarks of their hostess, voicing that theoretical broadness of opinion as to the conduct of life which, quite as much as the perfume which she always used, was a specialty of her provocative personality. They spoke now and then, to be sure, as she drew them into conversation, but their real intercourse was almost altogether silent. They eyed each other across the table, breathing quickly and flushing or paling if their hands chanced to touch in the services of the tea-table. Once the young man came in earlier than usual and found Sylvia alone for a moment in the silent, glowing, perfumed room. He took her hand, apparently for the ordinary hand-clasp of greeting, but with a surge of his blood retained it, pressing it so fiercely that his ring cut into her finger, causing a tiny drop of bright red to show on the youthful smoothness of her skin. At this living ruby they both stared fixedly for an instant. Then Mrs. Draper came hastily into the room, saying chidingly, "'Come, come, children,' 
and looking with displeasure at the man's darkly flushed face. Sylvia was paler than usual for the rest of the afternoon, and could not swallow a mouthful of the appetizing food, which, as a rule, she devoured with the frank satisfaction of a hungry child. She sat rather white, not taking much, avoiding Jerry's eyes for no reason that she could analyze, and in the pauses of the conversation would hear the blood singing loudly in her ears. Yet, although she felt the oddest relief, as after one more escape, at the end of each of these afternoons with her new acquaintances, afternoons in which the three seemed perpetually gliding down a steep incline, and as perpetually being arrested on the brink of some unexplained plunge, she found that their atmosphere had spoiled entirely her relish for the atmosphere of her home. The home supper-table seemed to her singularly flat and distasteful, with its commonplace fare, hot chocolate and cream potatoes and applesauce, and its brisk impersonal talk of socialism and politics and small home events and music. As it happened, the quartet had the lack of intuition to play a great deal of Hayden that autumn, and to Sylvia the cheerful, obvious tap-tap-tap of the hearty old master seemed to typify the bald, unsettled obtuseness of the home attitude towards life. She herself took to playing the less difficult of the Chopin nocturnes with a languorous over-accentuation of their softness, which she was careful to keep from the ears of old Reinhardt. But one evening he came in, unheard, listened to her performance of the B-flat minor nocturne with a frown, and pulled her away from the piano before she had finished. "'Not true music, not true love, not true anythings,' he said speaking, however, with an unexpected gentleness, and patting her on the shoulder with a dirty old hand. Listen, he clapped his fiddle under his chin, and played the air of the Andante from the Kreutzer Sonata with so singing and heavenly a tone, that Sylvia, as helpless an instrument in his skilful hands as the violin itself, felt the nervous tears stinging her eyelids. This did not prevent her making a long detour, the next day to avoid meeting the uncomely old musician on the street, and being obliged to recognize him publicly. She lived in perpetual dread of being thus forced, when in the company of Mrs. Draper or Germain, to acknowledge her connection with him, or with cousin Parnelia, or with any of the eccentrics who frequented her parents' home, and whom it was physically impossible to imagine drinking tea at Mrs. Draper's table. It was beside the same table that she met, one day in early December, Germain Fiske's distinguished father. He explained that he was in La Chance for a day on his way from Washington to Mercerton, where the Fiske family was collecting for its annual Christmas house party, and had dropped in on Mrs. Draper quite unexpectedly. He was, he added, delighted that it happened to be a day when he could meet the lovely Miss Marshall, of whom, with a heavy accent of jocose, significance he had heard so much sylvia was a little confused by the pointed attentions of this gallant old warrior oddly in contrast with the manner of other elderly men she knew but she thought him very handsome with his sweeping white moustache his bright blue eyes so like his son's and she was much impressed with his frock coat fitting snugly around his well-knit erect figure and with the silk hat which she noticed on the table in the hall as she went in. 
Frock coats and silk hats were objects seldom encountered in La Chance, except in illustrations to magazine stories or in photographs of life in New York or Washington. But of course, she reflected, Colonel Fiske lived most of his life in Washington, about the cosmopolitan delights of which he talked most eloquently to the two ladies. As was inevitable, Sylvia also met Eleanor Hubert, more or less at Mrs. Draper's. Sylvia had been rendered acutely self-conscious in that direction by Mrs. Draper's very open comments of her role in the life of the other girl, and at first had been so smitten by embarrassment as positively to be awkward, a rare event in her life, but she was soon set at ease by the other girl's gentle friendliness, so simple and sincere that even Sylvia's suspicious vanity could not feel it to be condescension. Eleanor's sweet eyes shone so kindly on her successful rival, and she showed so frank and unenvious an admiration of Sylvia's wit and learning, displayed perhaps a trifle ostentatiously by that young lady in the ensuing conversation with Mrs. Draper, that Sylvia had a fresh, healing impulse of shame for her own recently acquired attitude of triumphing hostility towards the world. At the same time, she felt a surprised contempt for the other girl's ignorance and almost illiteracy. Whatever else Eleanor had learned in the exclusive and expensive girls' school in New York, she had not learned to hold her own in a conversation on the most ordinary topics. And as for Mrs. Draper's highly spiced comments on life and folk, her young friend made not the slightest attempt to cope with them, or even to understand them. The alluring mistress of the house might talk of sex antagonism and the hatefulness of the puritanical elements of American life as much as she pleased. It all passed over the head of the lovely, fair girl, sipping her tea and raising her candid eyes to meet with a trustful smile, perhaps a little blank, the glance of whomever chanced to be looking at her. It was significant that she had the same smile for each of the three very dissimilar persons who sat about the tea-table. Of all the circle into which Sylvia's changed life had plunged her, Eleanor, the type of the conventional society bud, was, oddly enough, the only one she cared to talk about in her own extremely unconventional home. But even on this topic she felt herself bruised and jarred by the severity the unpicturesque austerity of the home standards. As she was trying to give her mother some idea of Eleanor's character, she quoted one day a remark of Mrs. Draper's, to the effect that Eleanor no more knows the meaning of her beauty than rose the meaning of its perfume. Mrs. Marshall kept a forbidding silence for a moment, and then said, I don't take much stock in that sort of unconsciousness. Eleanor isn't a rose. She isn't even a child. She's a woman. The sooner girls learn that distinction, the better off they'll be, and the fewer chances they'll run of being horribly misunderstood. Sylvia felt very angry with her mother for this unsympathetic treatment of a pretty phrase, and thought with resentment that it was not her fault if she were becoming more and more alienated from her family. This was a feeling adroitly fostered by Mrs. Draper, who, in her endless talks with Sylvia and Germain about themselves, had hit upon an expression and a turn of phrase which was to have more influence on Sylvia's development than its brevity seemed to warrant. She had, one day, 
called sylvia a little athenian growing up by the oddest of mistakes in sparta sylvia who was in the pater reading stage of development caught at her friend's phrase as at the longed-for key to her situation it explained everything it made everything appear in the light she wished for above all it enabled her to clarify her attitude towards her home now she understood one did not scorn sparta one respected it it was a noble influence in life but for an athenian for whom amenity and beauty and suavity were as essential as food sparta was death as was natural to her age and temperament she sucked a vast amount of pleasure out of this pitying analysis of her subtle complicated needs and the bare crudity of her surroundings she now read pater more assiduously than ever always carrying a volume about with her textbooks and feeding on this delicate fare in such unlikely and dissimilar places as on the trolley cars in the kitchen in the intervals of preparing a meal or in mrs draper's living-room waiting for the problematical entrance of that erratic luminary there was none of mrs draper's habits of life which made more of an impression on sylvia's imagination than her custom of disregarding engagements and appointments of coming and going appearing and disappearing quite as she pleased to the daughter of a scrupulously exact family which regarded tardiness as a fault and breaking an appointment as a crime this high-handed flexibility in dealing with time and bonds and promises had an exciting quality of freedom on a good many occasions these periods of waiting chanced to be shared by eleanor hubert for whom after the first two or three encounters sylvia came to have a rather condescending sympathy singularly in contrast to the uneasy envy with which she had regarded her only a few months before however as regards dress eleanor was still a phenomenon of the greatest interest and sylvia never saw her without getting an idea or two although it was plain to any one who knew eleanor that this mastery of the technique of modern american costume was no achievement of her own that she was merely the lovely and plastic material moulded perhaps to slightly overcomplicated effects by her mother's hands from that absent but pervasive personality sylvia took one suggestion after another for instance a very brief association with eleanor caused her to relegate to the scrap-heap of the common the ready-made white brushing for neck and sleeves which she had always before taken for granted eleanor's slim neck and smooth wrists were always set off by a few folds of the finest white chiffon laid with dexterous carelessness and always so exquisitely fresh that they were obviously renewed by a skilful hand after only a few hours wearing the first time she saw eleanor sylvia noticed this detail with appreciation and immediately struggled to reproduce it in her own costume like other feats of the lesser arts this perfect little trifle turned out to depend upon the use of the lightest and most adroit touch none of the chiffon which came in aunt victoria's boxes would do it must be fresh from the shop counter ruinous as this was to sylvia's very modest allowance for dress even then she spoiled many a yard of the filmy unmanageable stuff before she could catch the spirit of those apparently careless folds 
so loosely disposed and yet never displaced. It was a phenomenon over which a philosopher might well have pondered. The spectacle of Sylvia's keen brain and well-developed willpower, equally concerned with the problems of chemistry and philosophy and history, and with the problem of chiffon folds. She herself was aware of no incongruity, indeed of no difference, between the two sorts of efforts. Many other matters of Eleanor's attire proved as fruitful of suggestion as this, although Aunt Victoria's well-remembered dictum about the kitchen-maid's pincushion was a guiding fingerboard which warned Sylvia against the multiplication of detail, even desirable detail. Mrs. Hubert had evidently studied deeply the sources of distinction in modern dress, and had grasped with philosophic thoroughness the underlying principle of the art, which is to show effects obviously costly, but the cost of which is due less to mere brute cash than to prodigally expended effort. Eleanor never wore a costume which did not show the copious exercise by some alert-minded human being, presumably with an immortal soul, of the priceless qualities of invention, creative thought, trained attention, and prodigious industry. Mrs. Hubert's unchallengeable slogan was that the dress should be an expression of individuality, and by dint of utilizing all the details of the attire of herself and of her two daughters, down to the last ruffle and buttonhole, she found this medium quite sufficient to express the whole of her own individuality, the conspicuous force of which was readily conceded by any observer of the lady's life. As for Eleanor's own individuality, anyone in search of that very unobtrusive quality would have found it more in the expression of her eyes and in the childlike lines of her lips than in her toilets. It is possible that Mrs. Hubert might have regarded it as unkind visitation of providence that the results of her lifetime of effort in an important art should have been of such slight interest to her daughter and should have served during the autumn under consideration chiefly as hints and suggestions for her daughter's successful rival that she was eleanor's successful rival sylvia had mrs draper's more than outspoken word that lady openly gloried in the impending defeat of mrs hubert's machinations to secure the fisk money and position for eleanor although she admitted that a man like Jerry had his two opposing sides, and that he was quite capable of being attracted by two such contrasting types as Sylvia and Eleanor. She informed Sylvia, indeed, that the present wife of Colonel Fisk, his third, by the way, had evidently been in her youth a girl of Eleanor's temperament. It was more than apparent, however, that in the case of the son, Sylvia's type was in the ascendant, but it must be set down to Sylvia's credit that the circumstances of successful competition gave her no satisfaction. She often heartily wished Eleanor out of it. She could never meet the candid sweetness of the other's eyes without a qualm of discomfort, and she suffered acutely under Eleanor's gentle amiability. Once or twice, when Mrs. Draper was too outrageously late at an appointment for tea, the two girls gave her up and, leaving the house, walked side by side back across the campus. Sylvia, quite aware of the wondering surmise which 
followed their appearance together. On these occasions, Eleanor talked with more freedom than in Mrs. Draper's presence, always in the quietest, simplest way, of small events and quite uninteresting minor matters in her life, or the life of the various household pets, of which she seemed extremely fond. Sylvia could not understand why, when she bade her good-bye at the driveway leading into the Hubert house, she should feel anything but a rather contemptuous amusement for the other's insignificance. But the odd fact was that her heart swelled with inexplicable warmth. Once she yielded to this foolish impulse, and felt a quivering sense of pleasure at the sudden startled responsiveness with which Eleanor returned a kiss clinging to her as though she were an older, stronger sister. One dark late afternoon in early December, Sylvia waited alone in the candle-lighted shrine, neither Eleanor nor her hostess appearing. After five o'clock, she started home alone along the heavily shaded paths of the campus, as dim as caves in the interval before the big, winking, sputtering arc-lights were flashed on. She walked swiftly and lightly, as was her well-trained habit, and before she knew it, was close upon a couple sauntering in very close proximity. With the surety of long practice, Sylvia instantly diagnosed them as a college couple, indulging in what was known euphemistically as campus work, and prepared to pass them with a slight effect of scorn for philanderings, which she always managed to throw into her high-held head and squarely swinging shoulders but as she came up closer walking noiselessly in the dusk she recognized an eccentric flame-colored plume just visible in the dim light hanging down from the girl's hat and stopped short filled with a rush of very complicated feelings the only flame-colored plume in la chance was owned and worn by eleanor hubert and if she were out sauntering amorously in the twilight with whom could she be but jerry fiske and that meant sylvia's pangs of conscience about supplanting eleanor were swept away by a flood of anger as at a defeat she could not make out the girl's companion beyond the fact that he was tall and wore a long loose overcoat jerry was tall and wore a long loose overcoat sylvia walked on slowly now thoroughly aroused quite unaware of the inconsistency of her mental attitude she felt a rising tide of heat she had, she told herself, half a notion to step forward and announce her presence to the couple, whose pace as the Hubert house was approached became slower and slower. But then, as they stood for a moment at the entrance of the Hubert driveway, the arc lights blazed up all over the campus at once, and she saw two things. One was that Eleanor was walking very close to her companion, with her arm through his, and her little gloved fingers covered by his hand, and next that he was not Jerry Fisk at all, but the queer, countrified freak assistant in chemistry with whom Eleanor, since Jerry's defection, had more or less masked her abandonment. At the same moment, the two started guiltily apart, and Sylvia halted, thinking they had discovered her. But it was Mrs. Hubert whom they had seen, advancing from the other direction, and making no pretense that she was not in search of an absent daughter. She bore down upon the couple, murmured a very brief greeting to the man, accompanied by a faint inclination of her well-hatted head, drew Eleanor's unresisting hand inside her arm, and walked her briskly into the house. 
End of chapter 16